tuned to the conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. The recent decision of the Supreme Court to strike down Roe versus Wade gives us pause to look at uh, the procedure of abortion. Hawaii legalized abortion in 1970, but abortion care has a long history among Hawaii's indigenous people. HPR's Kuve Hirishi joins us in the studio to talk about it from that Native Hawaiian perspective. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So much of what we know about the ancient Hawaiian customs and, and practices around abortion come from this corpus of archival material, right? Oral history, first-hand accounts from uh, traditional healers, and also Hawaiian language newspapers papers and journals. So while there has been a revival of sort of traditional Hawaiian practices around birthing and prenatal care, many of these ancient traditions related to abortion specifically are not commonly practiced um, by Native Hawaiians today. But that being said, there are records of ancient practices, uh, abortion techniques, uh, providers, medicine specific to abortion, and medical instruments, uh, which Native Hawaiian health scholar Keloha Fox says all indicates Native Hawaiians have long valued uh, prenatal planning and have practiced methods of birth control to uh, circumvent unintended pregnancies. It's everything from, yes, birth control was a method that was used by Wahine to address unwanted pregnancy, all the way to, yes, we had uh, medical abortions where certain types of la'au were known to be used, and then there were surgical abortions too. The kahuna, the medicinal practitioners, also practice these techniques for reproductive freedom and self-determination for women's bodies. I, what I really hope people can know is that medical and surgical abortion methods were performed throughout our history, and medical and surgical abortions do continue to be needed today, especially because Native Hawaiian wahine have high rates of unintended pregnancy. Interesting. So, in, yeah, in the story, uh, we cover some of the specifics. So there were different lao or medicinal herbs that were used to prepare an, an elixir uh, to induce abortion, and that included ava. Uh, I saw young tea leaves in there, ho. And um, the fox also mentioned the use of a, me- of a medical instrument, a historical instrument or stick known as the o'o kolohua to perform surgical abortions. And um, OHA, the Office of Hawaiian Affairs, has uh, issued uh, a women's health report in 2018 that sort of goes into detail on some of this, these historical records of abortion-related and prenatal care um, practices. And in, in, so, in those instances, it was common, at least from Pukui, America Vena Pukui's findings, that uh, a woman, an ali'i vahine of high ranking, um, being impregnated by someone of lower rank would, in those cases, have an abortion. So, you know, these were these were reasons why um, uh, the Native Hawaiian people had an understanding of of, of this um, idea of being able to have this option. So, when we look at the U.S. Supreme Court's decision to overturn uh, Roe versus Wade within this historical and and cultural Native Hawaiian context. We see that this decision and and the potential impacts of limiting access in some communities to to abortion care kind of runs counter to this this longstanding tradition in in these islands. So Fox uh, specifically believes, you know, society could really benefit from Native Hawaiian perspectives and practices around abortion, especially this emphasis on health care, holistic health care and women's rights. If we're going to have a real and honest conversations about improving the health of Native Hawaiians, for us, these culturally and linguistically appropriate services for Native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders, all BIPOC communities should be rebuilt, reinstated, and revitalized from these ancient customs, rituals, and practices, and beliefs. So what you know, abortion. While abortion will remain legal in in Hawaii following this, uh, the overturning of Roe versus uh, Wade, uh, we did uh, speak to a Native Hawaiian doctor, Renny Soon, in OBGYN at Queens, who you know is worried that that this decision kind of adds to the negative stigma around abortion, 
uh, which really uh, is not the message that uh, has been passed down generation after generation here in the islands for Native Hawaiians when it comes to this practice. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting. I, I, I just now wonder uh, if other indigenous groups, you know, the Indian tribes, if they have, you know, their own um, uh, medicines and, and, and approach to this whole thing with contraceptive. Yes, no, ho- uh, hopefully that is the conversation that uh, we uh, will see coming out of, of this decision is these communities looking back to the past, seeing what, what had been done uh, and the long history of that and figuring out how perhaps that can become part of uh, the modern day practice and perspective around. Do you know if they have classes around this issue or maybe there will be a class on that? I think after this we will definitely be seeing workshops. Um, Fox specifically has been working on uh, material and curriculum uh, to educate folks on on these traditional practices so that we can be aware of them when they uh, come to bear. Yeah, fascinating. But thank you so much for bringing this out to light. Mahalo. We have been talking with HPR reporter Ku'uve Hiraishi. To read more of her stories, go to our website, hawaiipublicradio.org. Pandemic restrictions and bars. That's the subject of today's reality check. Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Stuart Yurton on the line today. Good morning, Stuart. Good morning, Catherine. Yeah, so you're taking a closer look at the Honolulu Liquor Commission and some of the complaints that have popped up. Yes, that's right. And really, you know, this part, the complaints, uh, we've heard a lot about them uh, over the course of the pandemic. Uh, There are quite a quite a few complaints. There was a lawsuit um, by a bar in Chinatown, uh, Scarlet Honolulu. Uh, There were other complaints about um, overzealous enforcement. What's going on now is it looks like uh, the city council is going to vote on a new commissioner uh, to the liquor, the five-person board that oversees the liquor commission on July 6th, um, an attorney uh, Seth Buckley has been nominated by the mayor. Um, he's going to go in there. And, you know, it could be the beginning of some changes. Bar owners are hoping. Yeah, I mean, because during the pandemic, everybody was shut down. And then when they finally opened, it, so many rules that they had to comply with. And we were getting, you know, we were hearing complaints like, oh, this this place is not socially distanced. They're not doing, you know, what the rules allow them to do to open. Right. And so what was happening is then the Liquor Commission had this uh, pretty extreme enforcement power where they could shut bars down for 24 hours without um, really any hearing or anything else. So uh, the bars were getting slammed by the shutdown orders. Um, They would come back and complain, possibly. Uh, They would get hit again. And they thought it was retaliation for speaking out. Uh, when we spoke to the Liquor Commission, they said, well, no, it's kind of normal if, if there's a complaint or some kind of even a warning, uh, inspectors will go back again. So there was quite a bit of uh, tension between the regulators and the regulated. And then uh, you also got wind of um, uh, someone new at the helm as far as the executive director, right? right? Yes, that's right. So, um, uh Long-time um, executive director, it's called the administrator in technical terms, the executive director of the commission, Don Picaro, a former uh, prosecuting attorney, um, he stepped down, went back to the prosecutor's office, and so there's a vacancy there at the top, too. Another longtime person, um, Anna Harai, has stepped in to sort of, you know, mind the store for a while, but, yeah, they'll have a new person at the top, too. And this person really will be managing day-to-day operations and really could bring about a lot of change. Well, you mentioned that bar uh, in Honolulu, the Scarlet. uh, They, I know, were feeling that they were targeted. Right, and that's the thing. I mean, you hear hear them talking, and their story is uh, liquor commissioners came in, they they forced their way in, um, they weren't 
uh, willing to show that they had been vaccinated. The vaccination policy was one of the very policies they were, Scarlett was actually enforcing. They wouldn't show proof of vaccination. They came in. Um, and then when Scarlett pushed back, they retaliated. The Liquor Commission retaliated. A, a publication called Gay Island Guide reported on uh, Scarlett's problems with the Liquor Commission and supposedly, allegedly, the Liquor Commission then uh, uh, went after Gay Island Guide and uh, cracked down and shut down a, an event it was having at the White Sands Hotel in Waikiki during the day, saying there were noise complaints um, that a daytime party was too loud. So this is the kind of thing that we're hearing about. And again, we hear about things from bar owners. They don't want to say anything. They're afraid of retaliation. We talked to two, two city council members who said, yes, um, they hear the same things. And uh, the perception among the bars is definitely that they're being targeted and have been targeted, and if they speak out, are retaliated against. And so, uh, yeah, at, at this point, then, we'll have to wait and see who gets named to the uh, uh, position as administrator of the Liquor Commission and see if uh, if anything changes. That's right, and that's really the key here. And, again, the mayor, Mayor Blangiardi, really does seem to be taking this seriously. Um, you know, they, they wouldn't do an interview, but they gave us a statement saying, yes, we're really taking these things seriously, and... Uh, while Mr. Picaro didn't uh, really defy us or wasn't insubordinate, we, we were having continued complaints by his um, inspector or about his inspectors, and it just wasn't really acceptable to the administration. Yeah, well, we'll see what happens. But thank you so much, uh, Stuart. Thank you, Catherine. That was reporter Stuart Yurton with today's Reality Check. You can read his story at civilbeat.org. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Board of Water Supply, offering ways that residents from Moanalua to Hawaii Kai can help conserve water. Updates on Red Hill and other information at protectoahuwater.org. I'm Bert Lum. Today on Bite Marks Cafe, we'll learn about a unique class over at the University of Hawaii called Hacking for Defense. How's in the College of Engineering? We'll talk to the course designers and find out how students get to solve problems that ensure our national security. That's today at 6.30 p.m. on Bite Marks Cafe. Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art with the evening event Palette on August 27th, a museum-wide celebration of food, drink, and art featuring local restaurants, bars, and entertainment. Tickets at honolulumuseum.org. Energy resiliency is emerging as a priority, and the military has been looking to modernize its infrastructure, particularly as we are experiencing challenges with our energy supply amidst global tensions. Today we hear from Emresco, an uh, energy solutions contractor that just signed a $102 million clean energy project with the military. Executive Vice President Nicole Bugarino joined us to talk about using technology to become more resilient. The projects that we have active right now, one that we just finished up over for Island Palm Communities, which is the community military housing over at Schofield Barracks. And we did a project with our partner there, Lindley, who's the homeowners over there, to create better energy efficiency in the homes. So we went in and installed new air conditioning units. We converted some of the older homes and put central air in for them and made it more comfortable for the residents over there, the military residents. We also did a large water project where we improved some of the irrigation controls so that it was you know, specific to when only needed rather than just running. We put in smart thermostats and we also did a lighting project where we went in and put, replaced some of the fixtures out with better, more efficient fixtures and brighter fixtures. And lastly, we went in and replaced with some of the insulation, just to, especially on some of those older homes, to make them more energy efficient. And then lastly, we put on solar PV panels 
on several, over 5,000 homes there, put solar PV on the rooftops. Yeah, I mean, a lot of our homes here in Hawaii are, you know, pre-war. They need updating. Right. You, you folks also have something going on over at uh, Hickam, a Pearl Harbor area? That's correct. Very similar project there, except we're not putting the Tahiti on the roof there. We're, at that one, we're focusing on the energy efficiency side. And then again, a large uh, water metering project where we can measure water for the residences, but also for the communities there to be able to conserve it better and also reuse where we can, you know, the irrigation, for example, instead of just sending it back through how we can be more efficient in the watering of some of their common spaces over there. I mean, that's good to hear because, you know, with all the flurry over what's happening at Red Hill, Uh, and the calls to conserve water, it's important that that there are systems in place so that the families themselves can help regulate, you know, what they're using. Exactly, exactly. So this project will go in and put better fixtures in there that limit the flow, but not in a way that should be bothersome, you know, and and limiting to the residents, but also promoting conservation as well. And then certainly on the irrigation, that's one of the biggest uses of water. So being able to control that better and make that more efficient is good for the water use. How far are you into that project at Pearl Harbor Hickory? So that one we actually are just starting. The one at Scofield, we 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 finished up and it's in what we call operations phase where we continue to support the maintenance of the system so that they can continue to get energy savings and that the systems are replaced as needed. The one at Hickam we just kicked off literally a few weeks ago um, in the construction part of it. And so your company also uh, does something with grid resiliency. Explain to our listeners, what what is that exactly? So my specific business unit within Amoresco is the federal division. So we are obviously by name, we serve our federal customers. And one of the drivers for our military is certainly resiliency. So that why they can stay on and be able to be mission ready and have sustained operations, regardless of grid outages, regardless of weather events. And so a part of our solutions that we provide to military bases is to provide this resilient solution. For example, at Paris Island, which is located over in the mainland in South Carolina, it's on an island, and we went in and put in solar there, but we also put in a battery storage system and a microgrid so that they can continuously have power even if they lose power from the utility. And it also has a base load that's using a cogeneration system there so that they have a firm part of their power, as well as the solar, which is more intermittent, since it's obviously only running or operating when the sun is shining. So we use that system through a microgrid, which controls and then optimizes when each of the systems should come online. Like when the sun's shining, you want to run solar. When the load is dropped from the base, it ramps up and down as needed to always use the on-site generation in the order that it makes sense. But then it also provides stability and power quality to that distribution system as well. So it's, it was a very good project. It's been in third third year operation now, and we're doing similar projects like that across different federal institutions, so that they can have both energy reduction, but also energy security as well. And that's done through a combination of solar. We've seen um, some other not our projects, but there are uh, federal institutions that use wind technology. But then they also use um, looking into using biodiesel and some of the other renewable green gas so that it's used to power and give sustained energy rather than, again, depending on solar or wind that could be intermittent and and require outside help, like through the sun or wind. So that's kind of the drivers that our military is facing and we're there just to provide solutions that make the most sense. So this is kind of a smart grid concept. That's right. That's exactly right. Is the the military looking at that here on Oahu? I think the military is is certainly interested in it. I mean, it's it's one of the in the executive order for our federal agencies to have resiliency in there. So there is certainly concern and discussion about that because – especially with more and more um, rising energy prices here, specifically in Hawaii, and dependence on fossil fuel that's driven with fuel oil prices, diesel fuel, it's even more concerning. And then just knowing that they have the coal plant shutting down in a few months, that would seem to have, you know, it could be concerning as well, just what the stable power may be 
And certainly just in anywhere, I mean, similar in other places here, just the age of the infrastructure and the vulnerabilities having above ground poles and uh, it certainly can be drive to have a microgrid resilient solution. Your company is also involved in a solar project out there on Oahu's west side. Talk about where you're at uh, and how large of a facility this is going to be. That is one that we are uh, doing um, in partnership with Bright Canyon Energy, and we have we're doing that project. It's 42 megawatts of solar and 42 megawatts of battery storage, and we are waiting right now. We are in the final stage, waiting PUC approval, which hopefully will be soon. We've gone through the processes there to complete that and answer questions and the community outreach. And where once we have that approval, or when we do have that approval. We will move into construction this fall. And so what's the the plan? I mean, is it on ag land? This is on federal Navy land, and so it's not really the same classifications that the state has on their land. And this is underutilized land that where most of its un- the land's unusable because it's near an ammunition storage from the Navy, and so there can't be anything built on it that's permanent, you know, occupied. So it's, it's a good place to put solar We've been talking with Amoresco's Executive Vice President, Nicole Bugarino, about the military's push to become more resilient with things like smart grids and renewable energy. Jay Griffin steps down tomorrow from his position as chair of the Public Utilities Commission. And though the PUC often operates in the background, it touches nearly every part of our lives. The decades-old regulatory body oversees 1,800 entities under the umbrella of telecommunications, transportation, and particularly energy. But a few cases have catapulted the work of the PUC into the headlines. Chair Griffin spoke with the conversation Savannah Harriman Pote about the most consequential decisions the commission has made in the last five years and whether the state's on track to meet its energy goals. It's hard work. You know, we are balancing true cost of living, true, you know, pocketbook bread and butter topics. People open up their electricity bills. They look, open up their gas bills every month. And, you know, you got to sometimes make hard choices to afford that. And so we need to be mindful of the cost of living in a state where it's very high, but everyone expects, and and deservedly so, reliable service, reliable electricity service for the small water utilities that we oversee. You know, these are small rural communities generally. They need to make sure that people get water. We oversee Young Brothers, so a critical lifeline throughout the community, throughout the neighbor islands, and we've had challenging decisions with to keep those entities viable, but they do need to make enough money to stay operating to earn a what we call a reasonable return. You know, we're in the middle of all that and then you know, that's just kind of a, how a, a normal commission, normal utilities operate and at the same time we've set some of the nations, the world's most aggressive energy goals and for good reason. AES's coal plant on Oahu, which is set to retire this year in September 2022. The plan to turn over that project and to make up the, I believe, 180 megawattage that that coal plant produces. What has been your relationship to that project over the past five years? Yeah, and so I want to, yeah, to be clear that this is something that's been going on for actually more than five years. Companies called AES, large company from out of state, they build the plant, operate it themselves, have a contract with Hawaiian Electric to sell the power. So the end of that contract was coming up this year, been known for quite a while. And so through that planning process, there was a question of what to do when the end of the term came up. And the proposal from Hawaiian Electric, which we ultimately accepted, was to not continue that contract and to build other types of what we call replacement generation. So that's been in the works since those plans were submitted in 2016, or we accepted in 2016, and then started our different procurement processes to acquire and and start building the replacement generation. Uh, So that basically coincided with my time coming onto the commission. And these are the largest procurements in state history, and it was largely driven by the need to replace it was the largest generating unit on this island and in the state. 
and and this is also coinciding with a record time in the renewable energy industry We're, across the across the country across the world you're seeing record low prices for new solar and wind projects uh, so we were doing all this at what I turn this is a you know one of the best buyers markets for these technologies we had seen in recent history so we're not just negotiating deals that were better than the price of oil they're actually better than the price of coal in the near term we have one project that is currently on schedule to be online prior to September. It's a, a solar project paired with battery storage in uh, just outside of Milani. Another one shortly after that, uh, we've put in place uh, some different programs, uh, both for energy efficiency and pairing uh, battery storage with rooftop solar program uh, with uh, rooftop solar and. The way it looks right now, those will help you know, provide some uh, the minimum new level of renewables that will maintain the current level of reliability of the grid, uh, backed up by the other existing generators. Uh, what Hawaii Electric has been going through is to to manage the maintenance of these plants such that later this year, basically all hands are on deck. There are a couple of things I want to want to clarify briefly for listeners. We're talking about 180 megawatts. That's roughly 20% of the island's energy, is that correct? I think it's tailed down a little bit in the, yeah, they've been between 15 and 20%, and that's been tailing down over the last few years. But it is the largest um, the largest source of single plant providing energy to the island, and it's burning coal, uh, so it's also the lowest cost source of energy most of the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and so now we're replacing that with as much other renewables as we can. Do we have a number on that? That's been a moving target. It's been, right now it's about 50%. What's happened is some of these projects have fallen out for a variety of reasons, and we're opening up a third round of competitive bidding at the moment to replace those projects as well. So over time, it'll be 100% replacement. Depending on the other power plants, those are all going to be the other uh, fossil fuel generating units are are going to be powered by oil. Okay. Yes. Okay. So that that is the for uh, until we get the additional projects online, that's going to take the place of the coal plant. You used some colorful language <laughs> at one point to describe what it would mean to transition off of coal and onto oil. Yeah, I believe I said uh, we're going from cigarettes to crack. Yes. Can you revisit that moment for our listeners? The plan was to go from coal to renewables. That's that was and and as we started the the bidding processes, we found that the new renewables were very cost effective. So that that looked my frustration at that point um, was pointed at the interconnection process, slowing these projects down, not taking full account of as you as as I said, what was gonna replace the coal. That if whatever whatever if whatever renewables are not coming online, we're gonna burn oil uh, in the meantime. And I pointed out two problems. One is that we don't know what the price of oil is gonna be this fall. My concern was that it was gonna be very high. Unfortunately that has happened and you know we don't know what it'll be like by the end of the year, but it's not looking great at the moment. So that uh, I think I said that we don't want to put our future uh, transition here in the hands of the oil market. And for the exact reasons that we're saying, these are all forces out of our control. Uh, we have no idea how long the price will stay elevated, but you know the conflict driving a lot of this doesn't seem to be going away anytime soon. Hmm. So it's not, when I talk about the, I talk about it in terms of addiction because it is hard to get rid of, but it's very difficult and costly. Um, that we pay, and we pay the price of the oil that we have to import. And that was never the plan, and there was, a, I think, a, not a full enough understanding of that was going to be the reality if we continued to delay projects, so I had to light a fire. But you'd say that at this point we're, we're more or less back on track. Uh, we're, we're, on, we're, on, we're on track. Um, not where we could have been, but these transitions are... They are challenging, and that's what we're seeing increasingly throughout the U.S. now is other older power plants are going offline, and in wholesale markets, they're not earning enough money, and their, power, their operators are retiring them earlier. And so the, 
National Association overseeing this just uh, posted probably for the first time I've seen about half of the country has some risk of not meeting all of their demands uh, throughout the summer here. And, you know, that was a stark assessment and to get everyone's attention to try and address that. The PUC has to take into consideration consumer concerns, goals of the industry, and then renewables and the renewable goals of the state. When you have a deadline that is months away or even years away, which one of those has to take a back seat if you are running into challenges, light delays, light supply chain issues? Reliability is not the one that you're sacrificing because there is a, a need, an expectation um, that the lights stay on, that people see that. I mean, it, it's literally a health and safety thing. One, we look at other contingency options, so it doesn't necessarily have to be a trade-off. We're looking at trying to balance diversify risk. But part of the reality is we are accepting higher costs to get things done sooner, faster. That is part of the equation. Renewable energies have not gone off scot-free in the public eye. In the time you've been on the commission, a project that has seen particular controversy has been wind farms in Kahuku. Can you describe that for listeners? That's been a long-standing controversial project. Prior to my being a commissioner, the commission approved the project. Consumer advocate at the time had said that we should wait until the environmental impact statement was done. Commission, for a variety of reasons, approved it before that. And to me, that was a, you know, when you step back and look at what the community is asking, they they said, you know, all these government agencies have a stake in in different approvals here, and no one has listened to us. And so fast forward several years later, when I become chair, <laughs> literally you wake up one day and you're watching a project, you know, have a police escort to, you know, take the turbines up to the site and mass protests going on at the harbor and at the site. And you just say, you know, you've, that's, we're not going to be successful over the long term with this initiative if if project after project is like that. Not projects will have controversy, they'll have opposition, but you know, if this is the path, you know, it's not going to be successful. It's been such a scarring experience for everyone. We have to do better. And so when we looked at our and we had a motion come into us, you know, asking us to go back and look at that decision that we'd issued several years before. That Supreme Court ultimately upheld our decision why we can't go back and kind of reverse things several years after the fact. But as a lesson, as a commissioner lesson for somebody, you know, working on this initiative of the state, having, you know, mass protests, building the project, having those protests at our commission, you know, we need, we did, we needed to look at, you know, how do we do our own processes better? How do we better engage the community? Um, so I think, over our time, we have tried to be much more open, uh, receptive, flexible where we can be. Uh, one thing that's proved controversial after that is that we did start asking the, the different renewable energy developers to finish their environmental impact statements prior to us making our decisions on those power purchase agreements. That, too, has proved controversial and will lead to different legal challenges. But I can say for me it was directly a result of you know, watching that experience play out in that community and how our organization had a role in it. And again, asking myself and ourselves how we can do better. When you step down from the commission, where are you hoping they will pick up and what are you hoping they will move forward? Well, I think we've got to keep close attention on plant retirements here on this island and on Maui. We've got to make sure that those transitions are as smooth as possible. There's no doubt we're facing headwinds at the moment in this current round of projects, that things are going to take longer to be sent here. And in the meantime, the oil prices are going to be high. So it's going to be a painful, I don't know if it's, again, six months, 12 months. Uh, and what I hope is people will not, use, not let that pain deter the long-term need initiative for the transition here. Because, I, again, I think I said it earlier that long-term, even short-term, but oil dependence is not a sustainable strategy for the state here. And then focus on collaboration among the, all the different entities involved to make projects successful, the building better partnerships with communities. 
you know, understanding that that is central to the success of this initiative, not an obstacle. It's been challenging, but the job's always challenging. So you just, when you say yes to it, you just got to know that you're, you're going to have to deal with some curveballs. That was outgoing Public Utilities Commissioner Jay Griffin in HPR Savannah Harriman Pote. Griffin will serve his last day as chair tomorrow. Attorney Naomi Kuwai will take his place. Support for HPR comes from Waikoloa Beach Resort on the island of Hawaii, offering Kama'aina hospitality with a range of options for dining, shopping, and activities. More about rediscovering the Kohala Coast at waikoloabeachresort.com. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Jan Phillips, author of Still on Fire, Field Notes from a Queer Mystic. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about healing from religious wounding. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. You're listening to The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. Would you look at the beak on that bird? Well, we're talking about Java sparrows who can be recognized by their less than dainty beaks. But we've also got their lovely calls for you, thanks to the Macaulay Library at the Cornell Lab of Ornithology. Here's biologist Patrick Hart from the University of Hawaii at Hilo with your Manu Minute. Java sparrows are very common birds in cities and towns across Hawaii and really can't be mistaken for any of the other small gray birds that might make their homes here. About the size of a chunky house sparrow, they have huge reddish-pink bills that seem a bit too big for their face, jet-black heads with bright white cheeks, bluish-gray bodies, and, if you look real close, a striking ring of rose-colored skin around their eyes. It's easy to see these birds up close because they love to live around humans. They're often the most abundant birds at bird feeders and on lawns in neighborhoods and parks. They use their huge bills to crack open a variety of seeds and grains, which is why they're so attracted to bird feeders, and also why they're considered major agricultural pests, particularly in rice-growing areas around the world where large hungry flocks can descend on rice fields around harvest time. Because they're so common where people live, the songs and calls of the Java Sparrow can be an important part of our soundscape. Java Sparrows are native only to the islands of Java and Bali in Indonesia and are not really a sparrow, but a type of estrilled finch. They have been one of the world's most popular cage birds over the last couple centuries and have been introduced and become established in many parts of the world. Interestingly, their populations in their native habitat have declined so much due to hunting and trapping that they're now considered endangered species in those areas. They were first introduced to Oahu in the 1960s, found they really liked it here, and have since spread and become common on all the other main Hawaiian islands. Unlike most other birds in Hawaii, they breed mostly in winter, and they often build their nests in the eaves of buildings or in cavities in the branches of large trees. While they're considered to be agricultural pests and can spread the seeds of invasive plant species, they're not much of a threat to any of our native forests or forest birds due to their habit of preferring places where people live. For Hawaii Public Radio, this is Patrick Hart from the UH Hilo Department of Biology. Support for Manu Minute comes from Hawaii Forest and Trail, exploring Hawaii Island with visitors and kama'aina since 1993. More information at hawaii-forest.com. We now 
know more about why we see an influx of box jellyfish on Oahu's south shore every month. The lunar calendar is what we use to forecast that invasion, 8 to 10 days after the full moon. That's what's behind the monthly alerts issued by the city's uh, Ocean Safety Division and local weather broadcasters. We happen to be out at the break of dawn with University of Hawaii scientists last week Friday during the warning period. Take a listen. The sun is just starting to rise. We're walking along the beach in Waikiki on the prowl for box jellyfish. And one of those out bright and early with me was a member of the Dawn Patrol. Suzanne is a member of St. Augustine's Church located just across the street from the Kapahula Groin. She was out scooping the jellyfish to help beachgoers avoid getting stung. On Wednesday was the first day I got 81, but the total from all of us was over 300. And yesterday, I got 609. I had to empty my bucket three times. And the rest of them, when we counted them up, there was over 3,000. And people don't know, and when they see us collecting them, they ask. And it's a good education for people to know that they are dangerous and how to take care of yourself after you get bitten. So how long have you been doing this? I joined about five years ago. And this is the Knights of Columbus? Yes, out of St. Augustine's Catholic Church over on Ahua. And so, gosh, have you been stung in this process? No, that's why we have tongs or we have, I have this grabber. We stay away from them. We don't pick them up with our hands because you can get stung. In fact, one of the girls got stung yesterday. She, when she went to put it in a bucket, one of the tentacles hit her face. How early do you get out here on the beach? Um, we're usually out here at 6.30, 6.45, only because they glisten in the sun, and it's easier to see them. Yesterday, you couldn't walk anywhere that you couldn't see them. They were everywhere. But today, not so much. We, it's a curve. You know, the first and third day are less than the middle one. And the surfers always ask us how many they got, we got because they know they're dangerous. Okay, you got one here. I got one. And <laughs> the tentacles are the poison part of them. Yeah, and they, they blend in so well. Yeah, it is hard to tell. Okay, yeah. two. <laughs> After yesterday, my... This is a breeze. Up, oh, yeah, they come in and in this area. Okay, three. <laughs> Big one. Three. So, is it just in this particular stretch of beach by the groin that you monitor, or how far down do you go? We go to the next beach, this beach, and then down to the pink hotel. And, uh, Okay, so you, you basically monitor from the uh, Royal Hawaiian Hotel down to right. Queen Sir. Right, exactly. We don't have enough people to to go do the other beaches. I know they had a lot in on the West Shore yesterday in Koalina. They said they had over a thousand, which is unusual. Oh, four. <laughs> yep. No. Nope. And you just stay on the shore, you don't go in the water. No, no. No, they usually wash up. You can see them. Yesterday, they were just washing up in hordes. But, no, I don't go in the water. And then what do you do with them once you collect them? We throw them away. We put them in the trash. I mean, the university, when they came, they took them back for research. But for us, it's just getting, you know, getting them off the beach so that people don't get stung. And hours before, University of Hawaii professor Angel Yanigihara was out in the water collecting jellies. She recently published research for more than two decades of studies on the spawning of the stinging creatures. It was a collaboration with SOAS, the School of Ocean and Earth Science and Technology. She was in the water, all suited up and armed with a flashlight. Well, interestingly, these animals only appear during a short window of each lunar cycle. And folks ask, where are they the rest of the time? And that's what we set about to answer. Uh, basically, 
collaborating with folks at SOAS, um, Dr. McManus, who's an oceanographer and has uh, quite a, a lot of expertise in ocean current modeling, helped us to discern what could be going on in Mamala Bay. And basically what occurs out offshore um, is what's called a cyclonic current. And that is, if you will, like an underwater tornado. So because we have changing currents offshore based upon the tidal status, when the tide is dropping, we have a diamond head current. When it's coming in, we have an EVA current. That sets up this motion within Mamala Bay in the center of the bay, which is basically like an underwater tornado. And that concentrates invertebrate uh, microscopic um, prey, the phytoplankton and zooplankton, as well as certain soft-bodied animals such as our box jellyfish, which feed upon this collection of organisms. So it provides a rich source of food for the animals in the offshore environment. So if I were to swim about a mile and a half offshore here off the Kapahula groin, would I run into them? Well, that's what we asked, and we tried to look at the modeling and then go offshore at night and do transects and look for them. And basically we find it's sort of a moving target off there. It's not a set waypoint in the water, in the um, in the bay, but it, there is an area at the night high tide where you have uh, this um, diurnal migration of of invertebrates to the surface uh, and one will find box jellyfish there as well. So they're not coming to the near shore area every day of the lunar cycle and it's not all of the box jellies that comprise the population that come. It's only those that get triggered that are of a certain age of maturity that can be triggered by the lunar basically the lack of moonlight for a critical period of time after sunset they become triggered to spawn and so their gonads become mature, and there are males and females. They swim very powerfully to the shore. We've tried to go along with them as divers, and they outswam us. We were being pulled diamond head with this perpendicular current, and the box jellies can outswim divers. So <laughs> so they made it to the shore, and then basically the, the males are broadcast uh, spawners, so they, they drop their sperm, and the females take up the sperm, fertilize their eggs, and then they brood the eggs until they're embryos for a certain number of hours, and then they drop these embryo strands, and the embryos then in the water column mature to free-swimming planulae. These little tiny microscopic planulae then find a substrate of choice and they attach to that and they become polyps. And they live as polyps then until they uh, grow to the proper size that they can become metamorphosed to juvenile medusa jellyfish, free-swimming jellies. And then they get sucked back out into that cyclonic current area and they grow until they're adults and the cycle repeats itself. The adults that come in to spawn, it's a one-way trip. Uh, they don't return, but their offspring uh, will then settle, uh, become polyps, and then at a certain period of time, they return. So the fact that we have adults that come every month in doesn't mean that it just takes one month for them to mature. In fact, we've age them. They have tiny little accretions called statoliths, which are much like tree rings, and there's one ring per day. So by taking all of the adults that we collected along the beach and isolating the statoliths and polishing them and counting the rings, we could determine how old each animal was, and we get the average age of the sexually reproducing adults and the average age is about five months. This kind of data set does require a long-term commitment in terms of collection and we did anatomical studies on every single animal as well as age and uh, size, etc. So the the findings really that we recently published represent about 20 years worth of work. So the, f the problem is that a lot of visitors just aren't getting this information and 
even when we're out here in full wetsuits and warn people, we hear all the time, oh, I'll watch out for them. Basically, that's impossible. They're, they're really invisible in the water. So it would be good to have better signage out. And really, because we have folks from different time zones here, if we could have the signs out from midnight on these affected days, that would be helpful. Also, first aid, we've spent over 20 years looking at the venom and looking at ways to mitigate the stings. And a low-tech version is douse the site with vinegar. That just keeps things from getting worse. It doesn't get into the skin. It isn't a treatment. It doesn't stop the venom that's already gotten into the bloodstream. And then a hot water immersion for 45 minutes and safe hot water. Better yet, we have a, a technology. We've received funding from Department of Defense to look at other ways to inhibit the venom and we found a very powerful way to do that safely, which resulted in a full U.S. patent. And part of that funding required that if we were successful, we commercialize this. So we worked with UH College of Pharmacy and UH School of Business to do that. So those technologies are available as a spray and a cream. So you don't need the vinegar and the hot water. You can use this spray and cream as a two-step. So it's called Sting No More and it's on stingnomore.com. So the spray has vinegar plus urea plus other actives and the cream has this active that gets through the skin very quickly and absolutely inhibits the venom. So it stops it in its track. And this is important to you because you're sensitive to the jellyfish stings and you got stung this morning. <laughs> yeah. Well, in, in the in the true sense of uh, the humor of the universe, they always seem to show me who is boss. So I had a little tiny area between my booty and the bottom of my wetsuit that was a small bit open, and sure enough, I got zapped right there. <laughs> but I had my sting no more with me, so I used that right away. And that was Angel Yanagihara, University of Hawaii Associate Professor, who just released new research to help us understand the amazing marine world of box jellyfish. It's the only species that we know that follows an unusual spawning and migration pattern tied to the moon phases. Well, we have to go now, but up tomorrow, we learn more about the critically endangered cultural art of hula ki'i, or Hawaiian puppetry. Give us some feedback, have thoughts on jellyfish, or anything else you may have heard on the air. Share them on our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Go to Facebook at The Conversation, HPR, or email us, talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. Find our archive shows on our website if you want to re-listen to a segment. I'm Catherine Cruz. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation.